You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Welcome, everybody. This is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio. This is episode number 511. Thank you all for tuning in. Today's program, we're going to be looking at prayer and the questions on in the larger catechism, Westminster Larger Catechism, we're going to be looking at and seeing if we how much we can get completed of this today as we look at the topic of prayer and very much a lot of the things, a lot of the questions from question 178 in Westminster Larger Catechism to the end of the Westminster Larger Catechism are largely dealing with prayer. And so I don't, there's a lot of questions here. There's like from question 178 to question 196, dealing with the topic of prayer. Um, I think if, 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 if we notice anything about that, it is the importance of prayer. And unfortunately, we're all guilty of this, of treating prayer as a bit of a tag on to our lives rather than the very, which should really be the very breath, the very healthy expression of our relationship with God. And I always liken it to any relationship that you have if you don't communicate, either, yes, of course, reading, hearing from the one you love, the Lord himself but also speaking to him and communicating in the opposite direction and so often we we do struggle in this and we our flesh is weak and this is where the devil the world of flesh and the devil will really challenge us and we don't really think enough about prayer and i'm speaking to myself here and Go through go through the Bible. How many prayers are there? Different prayers of different people before the Lord. John 17 is the, the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ as he prays before his Father in heaven. So quite a big topic. I, I Maybe this will be two parts. I'm not sure. Three parts. Who knows? We'll see how things go. Um, just a bit of an update. Um, some people might have noticed I looked up, and I didn't realize it had been this long since episode number 509 and episode number 510. The last one was on that article, or that kind of, uh, yeah, it was an article that Joel Beakey did on why we should retain the King James Version, or the authorized version, the title I prefer for that um, translation. Anyway, so that was episode number 510. There's a big gap between them. Apologies for that. And normally when I'm away that long, I announce it, let people know. And so really period of time kind of came up where I had no idea that it would be that long. I'm going to be away again from next Friday. A few preaching engagements um, away. But what I'm going to try and do and see if I can do is bring some equipment with me to do a podcast. Can't promise anything. The The preaching must come first. I'm sure you, I'm sure you will understand that. And so um, if there are things that crop up, whether that is, there's, there's a number of things I would like to respond to, but I just do not simply have really the time um i know there's that whole alistair Begg thing um i did go an email asking for my take on it and uh i don't want to i don't really want to get into the whole well-known pastor controversy stuff but there are important things to take away from it and things that we can learn about it because these issues regarding the changes in our culture with regards to marriage and all that, these are challenges that people never had to face decades ago. So these are things that we do need to think through and before we end up being challenged by them. So please keep that in your prayers. Um, I will see if I can get 
So I'm going to be here until next Friday. I expect to get another program done before that. So hopefully it'll be a program up before next Thursday. There's no real schedule at the moment. I'm just, as I can squeeze in whatever time can be squeezed in. And um, so if you have any programs you would like me to do over the next six to eight weeks, hopefully, try me anyway. I mean, hopefully in an area I've done before, in an area that I'm somewhat competent enough in, and if you want me to do a critique of, of whatever, please uh, please feel free to email me at Megiddo Radio. It's Megiddo Radio, M-E-G-I-D-D-O, radio at gmail.com. Anyway, enough about that because we, we have a lot to get through on our topic about prayer. So, question 178 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. This is a series we've done on this program. And... Really, so if you're if you're just stumbling upon this for the first time, there are other programs that go right back to question one. When 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 this is finished, I also have plans to go through things like the confession of faith itself and do a commentary on that. I also have plans to, Lord willing, go through the directory of public worship, the, uh, the directory of church government, all sorts of documents relating to the Westminster, relating to. Second Reformation Presbyterianism, and by God's grace, to go through those, along with a lot of the other kind of content that has been done in the past. Thing is, though, I, I don't have as much time for that, and so I think the the makeup of the program will probably it'll continue as it has been for the last like fifty odd shows or whatever. So, question one hundred seventy eight: What is prayer? The answer given in the larger catechism, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ, by the help of his spirit, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. So this is really helpful because we can sometimes have this attitude that prayer is just talking to God. There's a sense in which that's true, of course. It is us not just communicating, but expressing our desires to God. And these are not just, how to put it, these are holy desires, the work of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, directing our attention toward the the one who gives life and breath to all that is in this world. So we're offering up our petitions, our pleadings before God, and it has to be in the name of Christ, as the Catechism says here, because we can't come in our own name and in our own reputation. A name is important. When people say things about someone, you know they are either speaking well of them or speaking ill of them, that is, you could say, the name of someone, the reputation of someone, how someone is thought of. So we come in the name and the reputation of Jesus Christ. We come clothed in his righteousness. We come with his... We come because... Of him. If we come in our own name, if we come into the inner courts, the presence of the king, remember the king of Persia in the middle of the book of Esther, and Esther comes into the, into the she seeks to come into the, the presence of the king, and she will die unless he extends his scepter that royal permission toward Esther, that she may come in. We have permission to come in because of Jesus Christ. It is a wonderful privilege to be able to speak and to petition before the king. 
the great king of kings. And even, I was reading in my devotions there, Second Kings, and you see the anointing of the king. This is the Christ. We come in the name of the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who is has authority and power. And how do we come? By the help of his spirit. So the spirit enables us. So we come in the name of Jesus Christ, and otherwise we can't come. That's why we always say, um, you know, we pray to the Father through Jesus the Son. And we say, in his name we pray, or words to that effect, or in the name of Jesus Christ. But in order to be able to do so, we need the help of the Spirit of God. We can't come mechanically. We can't come in our own strength. We need the help of his spirit. It says, with confession of our sins. When we pray to God, we should confess our sins. Now, we've got to be careful with this. It's um, If it's private prayer, if it's public prayer, if you're leading, if, you, if you're one of the, the men who's involved in public prayer that's a little different and you know you don't speak about anything that's private but but there may be publicly known sins and you do you do so in a, in a certain way but but when you're praying privately you and god god knows exactly what you have done and yes you we do need to confess our sins and ask for the Lord to forgive us. Because when we come before him, we realize that we are sinners and we need forgiveness. Yes, we have been forgiven. If you, if you are a Christian, if you've turned from sin, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you're washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. None of the accusations, none of the those sins that were against you will ever be brought up in evidence against you again. You are clean. However, as you walk on your journey toward your heavenly home, your feet will get dirty. They will need washing. In Jesus Christ, we are clean, but we are in constant need of refreshing. We're in constant need of asking for forgive, for forgiveness out of a love toward God and out of seeking to be more like Christ. See, once we've trusted in Jesus Christ, yes, our home is in heaven and we've been delivered from hell. But then we're seeking out of a love to God to shed ourselves of that which causes division between us and him in our daily walk with him and in our walk with him before we arrive in that celestial city in heaven. And thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. That's what it says in the, in the answer. And thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. So we, we need our prayers near to be seasoned with thankfulness to the Lord. And I would encourage you to think of reasons throughout your day to be thankful to him. The air in your lungs. The heart beating in your chest. Do you have legs? Do you have arms? Do you, Can you see? Physic, you, physical eyes. Hopefully you've got spiritualized eyes to see and ears to hear. Do you have all these things? Make a note of it and thank the Lord for these things. These mercies that he's given you. And for rescuing your soul from hell. And for bringing you into a relationship. A saving relationship with Jesus Christ. For giving you a love for the Savior. And when you see him, you'll also see your own sin and to confess your sins. So that's a, that's a really good, helpful um, definition there of prayer. I just want to grab something there from uh, from J.G. Voss. And question... 178 and what he says on 
prayer. Really, really helpful commentary. I haven't gone through all of it. I've used it, kind of dipped in and out of it, but anything I've seen of it has been extremely helpful. J.G. Voss, the Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, a commentary. J.G. Voss was the son of Gehardus Voss, the famous Princeton theologian, well known for his biblical theology and everything else like that. But J.G. Voss um, was a, was a member was a minister within the RPCNA, that's the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. Uh, what kind of prayer is defined in this question and answer the catechism? It says, uh, this is um, Voss's treatment here is very much almost like a catechism of of this catechism. So it's, it is, it kind of fleshes out a number of the th- different themes in here. Um, it doesn't mean I, when I recommend this, I don't endorse absolutely everything, but 99% of it has been extremely helpful. And I think it's one of the best things. I would definitely recommend that you get it. Um, it says, in this statement, the catechism gives a definition of true prayer or Christian prayer, that is prayer offered to God according to his revealed will by a person who has been reconciled to him through the redemptive work of Christ. So. And he just makes a comment here about in about the, what this is um one of the questions he brings up, and he brings up a number of other questions as well. But what kind of desires are we to offer in to God in prayer? In prayer, he says, we are to offer to God only lawful desires, that is, desires that are in harmony with the moral law of God, that are offered in submission to the secret will. Of God, and by secret will of God, those things that are not revealed, Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine says that the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. So those things that are not revealed, what will happen to you, for example, when you will die, when I will die, how we will die, what will happen tomorrow? All these things have not been revealed to us when the Lord Jesus Christ will return. So we're we're praying in our desires in accordance with the moral law of God that's summarizing the Ten Commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart mind soul and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself that is the the first table and the second table of the law summarized but also in accordance and and we struggle with this part is the secret will of God because the things we don't know and we Say to the Lord, not my will, but thine be done. And those are the kind of desires and petitions that we are to bring before the Lord. Holy desires. Uh, In the Catechism, it quotes, it it makes a reference to Romans 8.26, which says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not, what we should pray for as we might, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Our desires. And you see, our desires will be this way. Not perfectly, of course, but will be this way because we've been changed. And what we want has changed. Question 179 of the Westminster Larger Catechism says this, Are we to pray unto God only? Answer, God only being able to search the hearts, hear the requests, pardon the sins, and fulfill the desires of all, and only to be believed in, and worshipped with religious worship, prayer, which is a special part thereof, is to be made by all to him alone, and to none other. Now, of course, we would think about, and like this is my background, I was raised Roman Catholic, and there would be prayers to the saints, prayers to Mary, in fact. And that seemed pretty normal growing up. Why? Because everybody else was doing it. But prayer is, we often, so often forget this, is an act of worship. 
And that should shape as well. Thinking about it as worship, our attitude should remove any casualness from our prayers. Any kind of flippancy or anything like that from our prayers. We're coming into the presence of God, seeking his face. And it is out of worship to him. So our prayers should praise him. Our prayers should exalt him. As a friend of mine once said, um, we want to be careful. We don't go down the route of having a shopping list. Sometimes our prayers can be, and sometimes you might have been at prayer meetings where all you hear is a big long list of things where people want the health of uncle so-and-so and auntie so-and-so and Tom's got a bad toe. or And I'm not saying that those things shouldn't be prayed for. They should be prayed for. The problem is when your prayers are only human needs and nothing else. Our prayers should praise God and lift him up because they are an act of worship. And yet we also ask for these things, realizing our dependency upon him, not upon human means. If, if you're sick, your greatest help is God, not the doctors. If only we remember that in 2020. So are we to pray unto God only? Number one, only God can help. Only God can hear us. Only God can pardon our sins. So when we pray, the, f- the most important prayer we can ask is that the Lord would forgive us in Jesus Christ, that, that through the blood of the Lamb, that we would accept Jesus, that we trust in him, that we're crying out, whosoever called upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We're calling upon the name of the Lord for salvation. We're asking for forgiveness of sins. And if we come by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, he will in no wise cast any out. But whether it be the so-called Roman Catholic saints, and there are true saints. Saint is anyone in Jesus Christ. Saint literally it comes from the Greek hagioi, which is holy ones, literally. The holy ones. And those are people, as identified by a lot of Paul's letters at the beginning, to the saints in Jesus Christ and various other things similarly said, we're not to pray to mere creatures. We're not to offer worship to mere creatures. We're not to offer our petitions and to depend upon mere creatures. We're to come to the one true and living God in the name of his only begotten son, who is true God and truly man. We come in his name. He hears our prayers. He answers our prayers. Now, the thing is, the answer to the prayer might be yes, no, or not now, or we're not sure how it's going to be answered. Just because what we pray for doesn't immediately happen does not mean God has said no to our prayers. Keep praying. The salvation of a dear loved one that you've prayed for many years, you don't know until that person leaves this earth whether or not the Lord will answer that prayer or not. And because God is infinitely wise, he's far wiser than we are as mere creatures. He will answer prayers of his saints in a far better way than what we can ask or think. So trust him when you come to the one true and living God in prayer. He alone is to be believed in, not anything else that man erects, whether it be the impressive people of the past or whatever the case may be. Sometimes they're not even that impressive. It's usually legendary accounts of various people. We are not to pray to any, but to God alone. Because prayer is worship. It is is a part of our worship. In your private Worship in your private devotions, and your private—that is to be worshipped to God. You are coming to God in prayer. You are 
hearing his voice. And anytime you read your Bible, it should be seasoned with prayer. It says in this answer, question 179, prayer, which is a special part thereof, speaking about religious worship and to be made by all, it's our duty, to him alone and to none other. Now, also imagine too that who else can be heard by all but the one who fills both heaven and earth, the infinite, true, and living God, the one who is without beginning and without end, the one who needs nothing from his creatures, yet is generous, kind, good, and true, cannot in any way lie, cannot change, without body, parts, or passions, as in, he is not in any way Subject to change. He is not made up of composition. He's not made of parts. As the Westminster Confession of Faith says, chapter 2, paragraph 1. And he's not, and he's without passions, as in, he is not suffered to undergo change from things around him. It is him whom we pray to. And when you read that word, God is without passions, it doesn't mean that God doesn't care. It's that God is so infinitely loving. He cannot be moved in any way to care more because it's not possible. He is pure love, infinitely loving. And it is him we cry out to. If he could change in any way, shape, or form, he wouldn't be God. It is him we cry out to. The one who cannot be changed and affected upon by creatures. It is him we cry out to. We don't cry out to mere creatures who are made up of parts, who are made up of composition, who are subject to change, who depend on something other than themselves. No, we don't cry out to a mere creature. We cry out to the one true infinite God of heaven and earth, who is most wise, most true. Him, him alone are we to cry out to and to worship before. Question 180 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. What is it to pray in the name of Christ? We've mentioned a few things about this already, but to pray in the name of Christ is in obedience to his command and in confidence on his promises to ask mercy for his sake. Not by bare mentioning of his name, but by drawing out our encouragement to pray and our boldness, strength, and hope of acceptance in prayer from Christ and his mediation. So what is it to pray in the name of Christ? And this really fleshes out question 178, but question 180, it's not just merely to mention his name. It says there, not by bare mentioning of his name. We're not just to use his name as a kind of a, a secret password or to use it blasphemously like that. But we come because this is how we've been commanded to come through him. We come in confidence of his promises, his promises, and to ask for mercy. And so when we're asking for mercy, we can't ask for mercy without him. If we ask for mercy without the name of Jesus Christ, without his reputation, without his perfect righteousness, without his perfect payment for sin, we are asking the Lord to set aside justice. And he cannot change for us. Whereas justice has been satisfied in and through Jesus Christ. So when we ask for mercy for our sins, the things that we've done against God, we can only do so in the name of Jesus Christ. And also, our encouragement to pray, because he is so infinitely powerful and great and glorious, and he's holy, 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 the one who fills both heaven and earth, how can we approach before him? Because he is true God and true man 
he, as the second Adam, represents us, his people, before the throne room of heaven. And so we have confidence and encouragement to pray and have every boldness because of the one who is our high priest, who is our intercessor, who is our representation so that when our prayers are offered in the name of Jesus Christ, it is a sweet, pleasant aroma before the throne room of heaven. We'll, our prayers will never be accepted outside of Christ. But in Christ, by faith alone in him, no matter the imperfections of our prayers, and there will be imperfections, our, our greatest deeds are but filthy rags, Isaiah 64, verse 6, but they will be accepted because of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ, this is my beloved Son, the Father says of the Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Our boldness, strength, and hope, the answer says, of acceptance in prayer from Christ and his mediation. And that's how we can have confidence. That's how we can have hope. Our hope comes from Christ, not our performance, not what, not our great keeping of the law that day. Not, I, I say that in a sense that we all fall short. None of us ever keep the law so that when we have sinned, come for forgiveness through the name of Jesus Christ. And when we've had a quote-unquote normally, or you've had the best day ever, or you think you have, we come in the name of Jesus Christ because those deeds are still filthy rags. And, he, and you can also add the sin of, of pride. Because as usually we think we're doing fine, we're arrogant. And this is the human condition. So we always must come and pray in the name of Christ. Question 181. Why are we to pray in the name of Christ? I'm going to go a little bit faster through these. Answer the sinfulness of man and his distance from God by reason thereof being so great as that we have no access into the presence without a mediator, and there being none in heaven and earth, or earth appointed to or fitted for that glorious work but Christ alone. We are to pray in no other name but his only. So and we've kind of we've already kind of mentioned this as well. The gap between sinful finite of the dust of the earth man who has broken the law of God, the distance between him or you listening to this or anyone else and the infinite God is so great. There needs to be a mediator, someone to stand and bring about peace between both parties. There's no one else appointed to in heaven and earth but Christ alone for this glorious work. It is only in his name. It is only in his name and his name, his name alone. Question 182. How doth the Spirit help us to pray? Answer. We, not knowing what to pray for as we ought, the Spirit helpeth our infirmities by enabling us to understand both for whom and what and how prayer is to be made and by working and quickening in our hearts although not in all persons nor at all times in the same measure those apprehensions affections graces which are requisite for the right performance of that duty It's very important that we realize as well, it is our duty to pray. It is your duty for all men everywhere, no matter what you've done, sinful, whatever. To It is your duty to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is your duty to pray to him. It is your duty to cry out to him. Yes, it is a great and wonderful privilege to be able to come into the presence of God. And we can 
you know, we can look at ourselves and say, I am unworthy, but it is our duty. We are not pestering God. We are not annoying him, quote unquote. If we come in the name of Jesus Christ, enabled by the Holy Spirit, it is a sweet smelling aroma. It is something pleasing before God. And again, it, as I said earlier, he's not a God, he's a God without passions. Even that phrase is a sweet smelling savor before the Lord, it is pleasing before him. It's not that God gains anything from us. He doesn't. But he loves his son. He loves righteousness. That is what is pleasing before him. And it's in and through his name. And to, in order to come and to perform that so sacred a duty, we need the Spirit of God. So how does the Spirit help us to pray? Question 182. We, know, we not knowing what to pray for as we ought. So often we, we forget things. We are sinfully negligent of certain things. We don't know what to pray for. The Spirit helps our infirmities. Where we fall short. And enables us to understand both for them and what and how prayer is to be made. He guides us. He's the spirit of truth and guides us in the direction of offering holy desires before God. And it says, and by working and quickening. Quickening means to make alive in our hearts. Now, this varies from person to person and instant to instant. Sometimes you will feel the extra presence of the Lord and the, the Spirit of God enabling you in prayer, usually in times of great distress when you are in great need of God. It says, although not in all persons, nor at all times in the same measure. Those apprehensions, affections, and graces which are requisite for the right performance of that duty. So, to apprehend, to, to, to know, to affections, what, what to love, to love God, to have a greater love of God. These graces, these gifts that the Spirit of God gives us, we need in order to perform that duty. And we are so sluggish at times. In our flesh, we are inclined not to pray and to, to resist it and to make excuses for it and to have be distracted by all sorts of things in this world. And the next question brings us on to various things regarding, you know, what to pray for. Question 183, for whom are we to pray for? We are to pray for the whole church of Christ upon earth, for magistrates and ministers, for ourselves, our brethren, yea, our enemies, and for all sorts of men living, or that shall live hereafter but not for the dead, nor for those that are known to have sinned the sin unto death. So it says here, for whom are we to pray? We are to pray for the whole church of Christ upon earth. We were to pray for the church, not just in your area. Yes, you should pray for those in your area and in your local church if they're sick or whatever the case may be or or somebody's visited the church and been attending and you, you pray for those people, of course you do. But but for every part of the church, you hear that maybe the suffering in parts of the world and parts of the, of the church, I think part of, part of the problem today is we don't know what is true and what is not, especially with the internet. But we should try to keep through our churches, through reliable communications of what is taking place in various churches. Pray for those churches that are going through persecution and suffering around the world. And there's many churches around the world that we can pray for and find out about and just keep before the throne room of heaven. And also, you know, it's not a bad idea if you're ever traveling around the world to try and go to the go to different churches, learn about what's going on, learn about the different different challenges that different parts of the world are facing in terms of 
the sharing of the gospel so that you can pray for not just your own local church, not just your own denomination, not just the church in your in your country, but also for the church of Jesus Christ all around the world. Not even just for those who necessarily agree with you in all points of doctrine to find out what is going on and to pray for them. We also are to pray for magistrates, those who, um, Romans 13 is a, uh, a place that we can think of, of the importance of magistrates, that they are ministers of God. First Timothy 2, 1 says, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Verse 2, for kings and for all that are in authority, that they may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So magistrates, those are in authority. You may not think highly of a lot of politicians, and much of the time rightly so, and we should be discerning, but still pray for them. Pray for them to repent where they need to repent. Pray for them to stand strong where they're standing strong in some issue that is in conformity to the will of God. And these can be people who, they're not Christians, but for example, say somebody is standing up against abortion. And that's the only area they get right. It's not, it's not the only part that matters, but you pray for them to continue to voice opposition against the murdering of children in the womb. So pray for people. Pray for righteousness to be openly seen to reign in the land. And ministers, it says. Colossians 4 verse 3 with all pray, praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance and to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds with all praying also for us so pray for ministers pray for those preaching the gospel pray for those who are preparing sermons pray for those who are preaching the truth pray for the ruling elders around them Pray for deacons as well. This is not in here, but we pray for all all men, all kinds of men. For ourselves, we we are creatures of the dust of the earth. We are sinners. We need prayer. We need much prayer. We need help. And we seek the Lord. And we should pray for ourselves, our brethren in Christ, yea, our enemies. And do we pray for our enemies? Those who wish to do us harm. Those who have hurt us. Do we pray for them? Do we pray for those, and we we don't often think of them as enemies, but we're to love our enemies, aren't we? But when we give out tracts to people who hate the gospel, hate the truth, and reject it, they're enemies of God and his people. Now we're to love our enemies and we're to love them with the truth and share the truth with them and to be good neighbors to them, all sorts of things. And we're to pray for them. And for all sorts of men living, it says, or that shall live hereafter, but not for the dead. That's an important thing and that kind of crept in. What's that about the 4th century person of the dead entered in? Obviously, it's a superstition. Once a person dies and their their soul is separated from their body, their body goes into the ground, their soul is either in heaven with the Lord because their sins have been forgiven in Jesus Christ, or they're in hell. Until the day their bodies will be resurrected, that, that person's body will be resurrected. We are not to pray for the dead. As it says here in a text referenced in the larger catechism, Second Samuel twelve twenty one. Then said the servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child, while it was alive. Reading the right one there. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, this is um, David is fasting and weeping and praying for his child. And his child dies linked with the his sin. And then in 2 Samuel 12, 23, But now he is dead, therefore shall I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So we are not to pray for that. The last point there is interesting, and I'll be honest, this is a kind of a a text I've I've preached to First John, and my understanding of the sin unto death is really just a a rejection, a hardening, an unbelief. But for the sake of completeness in this question, question 183, I'm just going to read out what Voss says here. And so we're not to we're not to pray. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. Sorry. He says here, this is a Voss on sin unto death. This expression, which is taken from 1 John 5, 16, is usually understood to be equivalent to unpardonable sin or, quote, the sin against the Holy Spirit mentioned in Matthew 12, 31 to 32, Mark 3, 29. The sin is unpardonable, not because it is too great to be forgiven, but because its nature is inevitable, cuts off the possibility of repentance and saving faith and therefore salvation. It is understood to be stubborn, permanent and complete resistance to the pleadings of the Holy Spirit, which finally results in the Holy Spirit abandoning the person to his own sin, totally ceasing to influence that person. Since true repentance is the gift of God and comes by the work of the Holy Spirit in the person's heart, it is no longer possible that the Holy Spirit has finally abandoned a person. Such a person becomes utterly hardened and no longer shows the slightest interest in spiritual things or the salvation of a soul. So I suppose there's, okay, there's a lost person and the lost person, the only way that they will come to know the Lord, the only way they will come to know the Lord is by the Spirit of God and they're dead in trespasses and sins. And It's a tricky area, this. Um... Because it is ultimately unbelief and a hardening and a resisting of the Holy Spirit. But we can't really know who and who it isn't. I can almost anticipate what some people are thinking here. Because it's, you know, the, the, the question says, um, nor for, for those who are known to have sinned a sin unto death, to have known. But I think we're not going to have, uh, you know, it's, Voss says here, and skipping ahead a little bit, but we don't know who's who. However, we should be extremely cautious about saying that any particular individual has sinned the sin unto death. It is, imp- it is improbable that this is a common sin. We should note the exact words of 1 John five sixteen. There is a sin unto death. I do not say they shall pray for it. The text does not say, I say that, I say that you, he shall not pray for it. It simply refrains from commanding us to pray for such a person. So we're to pray for all sorts of people. To be forgiven for all sorts of things. But I suppose the way I would put it is not for this particular sin. I do not say that he should pray for it. If there is any reasonable doubt to whether the person has committed the sin unto death, we sh- we may probably pray for such a person that it, if it is God's purpose, God in his mercy will save him from sin and eternal death. 
I've heard talks about this, and when I was preaching through it, I really just kind of emphasized basically a hardening and an unbelief. And and if anybody has a concern whether they've sinned the sin unto death, you haven't. Because somebody has sinned the sin unto death is so hardened, they they don't care. But we can think that someone is so far gone that they're they're so hardened they're definitely not going to get saved. We don't know. And I, I urge caution in this because we don't know people's hearts. We don't know what kind of guilt. You don't know if that person who is, you know, okay, the street preaching taking place and somebody's screaming, hail Satan onto you. You don't know if that person has been wrapped with guilt. At home. So. So we're to pray for all sorts of people. And all sorts of situations. All sorts of men's. All sorts of backgrounds. All sorts of things. But we're not to pray for the dead. And those who are known. Have sinned the sin unto death. Known. And in any case. We don't know. We don't know. Many times we don't know. There's people who abandon the church, discipline out of the church, and they may go off in a certain direction, maybe make a train wreck of their lives. We can pray for them to repent. We should pray for them to repent. But it does become very, very difficult. Apostasy is a scary, scary thing. And we should never play with such things. Okay. So, question 184. For what things are we to pray? Question 184. We are to pray for all things tending to the glory of God, the welfare of the church, our own or others' good, but not for anything that is unlawful. Kind of mentioned that already. So we're to pray for things that glorify God. That's something to pray for. Do you pray for that? That God will be glorified in evangelism. That God will be glorified in the service of worship tomorrow and the Sabbath day. The blessing on the church. Blessing on yourself and your family. But we're not to pray for anything that is not good. For example, if you were praying to be able to, I don't know, for good weather tomorrow that you can play football on the Sabbath day, well, that's sinful and you shouldn't be praying for that. That's not what we're to pray for. So it must be lawful. Question 185, how are we to pray? We are to pray with an awful, and now awful by that meaning is not like, you know, we understand awful, you know, if you taste something and it's awful. Not that kind of awful. Awful in terms of awe. We're in awe of something. So we are to pray with an awful apprehension of the majesty of God. We're in awe of him. That's how we're to pray. This is why we need the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to read all this question again. We are to pray with an awful apprehension of the majesty of God and deep sense of our own unworthiness, necessities, and sins with potential with penitent, thankful, and enlarged hearts, with understanding, faith, sincerity, fervency, love, and perseverance, waiting upon him with humble submission to his will. How are we to pray? This is how we are to pray, and this is why we need. And so we need to be in awe of him. We need to have a deep sense of our unworthiness. If we think we're great, we think we're fantastic, we'll come to him with pride. God resisteth the proud and sins, and penitent, and thankful, so we should be thankful. Learn One tip I'll give somebody is learn about God, what's called theology proper, the attributes of God. If you don't know much about God, you're not going to be very much in awe of him, are you? You're going to compare him to a creature, and you're just going to think he's a slightly stronger version of you. 
and that's an idol. He is holy, 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 and part of the holy means set apart, separate. So he's not a creature. He's not just separated from sin, separate from sin. He's also separate from his creation. He is infinite, glorious. He is infinite love, most loving, most kind. Actually, in question, in chapter two of the Westminster Confession of Faith, there is one, but there is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's a great chapter. Read chapter two of the, the Confession of Faith. May that stir you up to having a, an awe of God. See, he's incomprehensible, but we can apprehend him. Now, comprehensible, how would I put it? Think of comprehension in terms of you can measure, wrap your mind around. But when it comes to apprehending, apprehending is different. So, apprehension, to apprehend. So the understanding, a grasp, we can understand that God is is all-powerful, all-knowing. But we do not comprehend him. What do I mean by that? How can you wrap your mind around? How can you understand really fully, entirely how it quote unquote works or to measure or to... There's nothing in this world like God. So we cannot comprehend it. He's incomprehensible. But we can, we apprehend him. We have an awful... App- He's, we're in awe of him because we're just like, wow. It is, a, as uh, the Webster's Dictionary 1828 puts it, contemplation of things without affirming, denying, or, pa- or passing any judgment. So it's a contemplation. We're to contemplate God and his greatness. Without comparing, this dictionary says, without comparing them with others or referring them to external objects. Simple intellection. So there's an apprehension, but not a comprehension of God. God is too great. And that is why we are in awe of him. We cannot wrap our minds around. But we accept, we believe, we trust that he is all-powerful beyond our limited scope and comprehension. Question 186, what rule hath God given for our direction in the, in the duty of prayer? The whole word of God is to use to direct us to the duty of prayer. But the special rule of direction is that form of prayer which our, which our Savior Christ taught his disciples commonly called the Lord's Prayer. So, I think that would be a good place to stop. And I, I was kind of suspicious if I would actually get this finished. And it's, 
It was always likely they wouldn't. It would be too much to cover. But this is a good place to break off. So we've we've dealt with question 178 up to question 186. So we're going to stop there. Then the next program on the larger catechism, whatever that will be, hopefully in not too distant future, we'll be starting with question 187 and it'll just be dealing with the Lord's Prayer. And uh, Lord willing, that will be a blessing onto your soul. Megiddo Radio at gmail.com. Megiddo Radio at gmail.com for any suggestions. If you want me to critique anything, respond to anything, and that would be a good place to send it to me. Can't promise I'll cover everything. Lord willing, I get a few more programs done in the next few days after the Sabbath. And also anything you would like me to get a radio at gmail.com. This is from Paul Flynn. May God bless you all.